begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the means of grace which you send to us that we would have abundant mercy from above. And we thank you especially for the gifts of confession and absolution and of the Lord's Supper. And we pray that you would help us and lead us to recognize sin in our lives, uh, to repent of it, and to turn to you and to faithfully receive your gifts. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, picking back up on confession absolution, we're almost done with this, uh, but there's just a few things we want to finish up. And then we, we want to... Uh, we, we talked about what is sin a long time ago, uh, back in the beginning of the book, but we want to revisit the topic of sin just a little bit um, because this question came up the first week that I promised I'd get to of the difference between uh, different kinds of sin and is all sin equal and uh, the way that kind of plays into confession absolution. So we'll look at that tonight as well um, as I promised we would talk about it. By way of review, last week... Um, First week, we were on confession. We talked about kind of definitions, what confession is, what absolution is, what repentance is. Last, last week, we looked primarily at uh, private confession absolution. So um, what the difference is between confessing our sins to God in prayer, confessing our sins um, at the beginning of the church service in the rite of corporate confession absolution, uh, and what the difference is between confessing our sins to one another as fellow Christians, um, seeking consolation. We talked about that phrase, mutual consolation and conversation of the brethren. That's a kind of technical term for that. And then what the difference with all those is and um, private confession absolution and the idea of specificity of getting those uh, words spoken by the pastor who's given the office of the keys um, to proclaim forgiveness, that that special and specific gift of private confession and absolution. So um, that we want to pick that conversation back up. Last week we talked about objections to private confession and absolution so, and the history of it, uh, how it kind of fell out of practice in the Lutheran church, but how it's coming back into practice, but how it is a very historical practice, and um, some of the objections, like it's too Catholic, or that um, it's too awkward, or that the pastor's going to think of me differently, um, so on and so forth. What we want to do um, now is jump into, if, if you're in the book on page 155, these um, different topics... Um, actually, starting at the end of 154, preparation for confession, during confession, and after absolution. Now, some of this, this is primarily written describing private confession absolution, but some of it's going to apply to um, those other types of confession and absolution we've been talking about as well, like prayer and um, the divine service and uh, talking to a mutual consolation conversation of the brethren. So uh, Luther um, addresses this in the small catechism. He says, when you're preparing 
for confession, then you should uh, examine your life, your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. So um, your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Okay. So we'll kind of take these in turn and then talk about the connection of them. So your place in life, another word for that is that we'd like to talk about as Lutherans, is vocation. Um, and I'm sure in Lutheranism 101 there's uh, at least a paragraph, if not more, on the topic of vocation. But vocation comes from the Latin word vocatio, which means calling or uh, to call. And this is the idea of that God has called us to certain um, – another phrase we use to talk about this, not place in life, but station in life, that God has called us uh, to certain stations in our life, certain places that we are, where we have um, things that we're called to by God to, to do. And there's a whole list of these also in the small catechism and the table of duties. So if you've come to Sunday morning um, – Bible study before you, we've we've gone, um, or if you do the at-home prayer, the catechism memory work has gone through the table of duties before, which is this list of biblical references for different vocations or different places in life. So a couple um, examples of these. Would be uh, Father... Of course, mother, husband, wife, so any kind of family relationship you can think of, so son, daughter, etc. Um, employer, so a boss of some kind in a job or an employee, right? A worker of some kind, um, a citizen of the, the government whether that's local, state, right, whatever, where you're a citizen on different different levels, but a citizen, right, we're all citizens in uh, this room, or um, so the, the government itself, or we could say, you know, if you have some sort of leadership, governmental position, uh, pastor, right, in the church, so that this doesn't just mean in the world, but also in the church, um, or uh, a layman, which is a person in the church that's not the pastor, right? So some a lay person, um, right? Or actually Luther calls them, uh, instead of uh, pastor, he calls them the preachers of the word and the hearers of the word, I think is what Luther uh, uses there. Um, so et cetera, et cetera. You can think of different, um, uh, more examples, I'm sure. But these are these different uh kind of places that we exist, right? Realms in life, whether that's in our family, in, this, in the realm of the world, or in, um, right, you can, student, teacher, uh, these would be more. Uh, or if it's in the realm of the church, uh, we all have different areas and places that we're called to in life. So um, these, are our, this, these are our places in life, right? These are our vocations. And he, Luther's advice is to consider those vocations in light of the Ten Commandments, which, um, as we know, is a good summary of 
of God's law, of God's will for our life. And when we do this, this is uh, when we will start to see uh, certain sins that we may not be able to see. So we kind of talk, we've, we've touched on this a few times so far, but um, certainly there are times in life where something will happen in your life and you will have a stricken conscience. Right. Um, you will have a time in your life. Uh, everyone does have these times in their lives when they know that they've done something wrong. Right. And it hurt and it burdens their conscience. Um, they know that they've sinned. Uh, they did something that um, they they didn't maybe want to do it. Um, but yet their sinful nature uh, drove them to do it. And they feel guilty for what they've done. Right. And no, they didn't need to think about it. Right. They didn't need to think like. Where have I sinned in my life? It just, it was heavy enough that it was there at the surface, right? So that happens, and certainly we should repent of those sins and receive absolution, right? We should, um, that's in some way obvious as a Christian, right? That whenever there's a, a sin that, you've, that you know and feel in your heart in a strong way, right, then you should seek repentance for that sin. Now, um, when we go to confession, whether that's before God in prayer or to private confession or to uh, public confession, uh, it's also not a bad idea to not just think about the things like that are that obvious in our lives, right? Because if you even think of, if you think about the divine service every week where we do confession absolution, um, every week you might not have something that's like burdening your conscience that heavily, right? You might go through a week in life and um, there wasn't anything that really like burdened your conscience that really stuck out to you that made you feel really bad about yourself, right? Um, that this Part of this is also dependent on, um, I think, this kind of a side thing, but I, I think part of this is dependent on like personality too. Some people are more prone to um, like self- introspection and consider like I I have friends um, one friend in particular I just am thinking of that is very prone to constantly have a burdened conscience right he, I, I think it's kind of like Luther in this regard um, Luther was like this that he just constantly thought about his sin and the and the ways in which he was a sinner I am like the opposite <laughs> okay um, and th- this is a this is I mean each is has its own spiritual dangers right each um, way but at least personally um i'm pretty good at like hiding things from myself and i'm prone to be generally content and and happy but sometimes i shouldn't be right so that it just depends on um on the person in some way but for that reason uh some some people especially but i think everyone in general it is good to uh, what we're talking about here, prepare for confession. Uh, and Luther's advice is, so getting back to what we originally were talking about, to examine your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. So, am I a father? Okay. If I'm a father, then um, what are my duties as a father? My duties are to raise my children uh, in the 
nurture of the Lord. My duties are to provide for my family and protect them. Uh, my duties are to um, love my family and, and care for them and, and give them their needs. And uh, then I look at the, the Ten Commandments, right? And I um, start to go through those Ten Commandments and I can start to think about ways in which I have uh, taken those duties as a father and broken them according to the different commandments, right? So third commandment, honor, remember the Sabbath day by keeping holy. We should um, hold fast to God's word, gladly hear and learn it. Oh, yeah, I uh, really did not do a good job leading my family as a father in the devotion of God's word this week, right? So there's an example of where you can make those connections between your duties and vocations and the Ten Commandments, right? So I'm um, actually going to pull out the, the catechism here, and um, I'll read this entire section of what, what Luther recommends here because he gives a lot of these example questions, and I think they're, they're kind of helpful. So um, what sins should we confess uh We already talked about that. Okay, which are, so the question is, which are these sins that we should confess that we know and feel in our hearts? And he encourages this preparation to confession. So he says, consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Are you a father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker? Um, And that list is meant to give you more ideas to think about, right? It's not just, if you're not one of those things, you can ignore the question, right? Um, It's supposed to get you thinking. Have you been disobedient, unfaithful, or lazy? Have you been hot-tempered, rude, or quarrelsome? Have you hurt someone by your words or deeds? Have you stolen, been negligent, wasted anything, or done any harm? Um, So just asking these questions that are based on your vocations and the Ten Commandments are a good way to get you thinking. And it's not meant to just, like, make you feel bad, right? Um, But it's meant to get you to think about ways in which you have sin manifest in your life that you then can repent of. And right, what does repentance mean? It means uh, to turn around, to change our way, right? Uh, to make a U-turn. And so when we recognize that there are, there's sin in our life, that gives us the right ways in which to have an opportunity to change, change for the better, right? To grow, um, to be sanctified as a Christian. And so uh, that... I think the idea of preparing for communion is um, uh, a very good idea, and um, there's. I, I was going to print it out, and I, I forgot, but um, there were old Lutherans that made these documents called the. I only know the German word. I don't, I don't think there's really a translation for it, but they're called Beichspiegels, and. Um, what they are are a list of the Ten Commandments with a lot of questions underneath them, right? Um, a, kind of relating to vocations and stations in life based on the Ten Commandments that will help you think through um, the Ten Commandments and how you might have uh, sin manifest in your life. And people would use these to prepare for uh, confession. So um, that's I, I, there's a the only one I know of that's in English is from this book called The Brotherhood Prayer Book, and it's free online. I can um, print it out next week, but I think Steve has a copy of it, I know. I sent it to the elders. Oh, there we go, look at that. Um, 
I gave it to the elders a long time ago, I remember. So, um, Anyway, that's a bike spiel. But the idea of preparing for – that's basically the idea of preparing for confession. One other thing I'll mention is that another way people like to prepare for confession is um, to read the penitential psalms. So there's a couple of psalms that kind of fall into this category of penitential psalms. And as you know, psalms are very good prayers in and of themselves. And um, the penitential psalms are songs that are basically uh, songs and prayers of repentance. And as you pray them, you're kind of praying in the, the place of the Psalter, um, praying to God for for his forgiveness of your sins. And uh, anyway, I'll just let you read them at some point. But um, these are the penitential psalms. And it actually, at the beginning of the rite of individual confession absolution in the hymnal, um, it says, you may prepare yourself by meditating on the Ten Commandments, or you may also pray the penitential psalms. So just kind of life advice here. But um, the penitential psalms, if you're taking notes, are six. I'll just write them down here. Six, thirty-two. Uh, 38, 51, 38 and then 130. Yeah. Yeah, those are the penitential psalms. So And then kind of a balance to that is at the end of the rite of confession absolution, um, it also says you may remain to say a prayer of thanksgiving, Psalms 30, 31, 32, 34, 103 and 118 are appropriate. So uh, those are Yeah, so thanksgiving psalms. Um, so these are penitential And then there's Thanksgiving Psalms. So for after you've received absolution, um, 30, 31, uh, 32, which notice 32 is actually both, right? It it talks about it talks about sins of uh, sins, and then and then receiving absolution. Um, yeah, and then 30, 34. 103 and 118. So those are those are all good psalms to uh, to pray surrounding confession and absolution. Yeah, yeah. Third, 32 is a good one. I I like to use that um, when I hear confession. Uh, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted a day through my groaning all day long. Um, I'm going to skip down to verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So it talks basically about the theology of confession absolution, right? Um, That to keep silent, to not confess, is 
uh, dangerous to one's soul. But when we confess, God is faithful and just and forgives our sins. So, all right. So that's kind of preparing for confession. Um, then uh, it goes down to during confession. So uh, for the first thing the author mentions here is that when you confess, it is not essential that you list every single sin, right? That would not even be po- possible, and it's not necessary. So, um, yeah, because we have sins we don't know about, right? So we've, we've talked about that before. Uh, this was part of Luther's problem is that the, Roman, the late medieval Roman Catholic Church taught that uh, you should try and confess every sin that you've committed. And Luther realized how sinful he was, and he realized that's not possible, and he would be in the confessional for hours at a time, um, and his father confessor actually got fed up with him, right? He said, just trust in Jesus and go home. <laughs> um, that's actually basically what happened. So that's part of how Luther became a Lutheran. Um, so the idea is not to confess every single sin that we've ever committed. The idea is to confess those sins that specifically bother our con- conscience, right, that, that weigh on us. Um, and sometimes those come out in a more formal or um, purposeful preparation. Sometimes those just bubble up to the surface, right? So that's kind of what we were talking about just a minute ago. Um, so yeah, after self-examination, talk with the pastor about those sins that particularly trouble your conscience. Um, be specific if you are able. Now, this is a good point. He says, if you have trouble thinking of what to say, a general admission of guilt against God's law is sufficient. So um, I think I mentioned this, but in that right of private confession absolution, um, sometimes people just have a general sense that they are are not perfect, right? They don't live up to God's law, and they have sins that bother them, but um, for whatever reason, they're just really not comfortable um you know, telling the pastor or um, they still are trying to figure out how to uh, word or explain what they're going through. And um, sometimes people will just take that right of confession absolution. So the I, I know I passed it around last time, but the the right has a confession that's already written, right? So it says, Um, The confession is like this. I, a poor sinner, plead guilty before God of all sins. I have lived as if God did not matter and as if I mattered most. My Lord's name I have not honored as I should. My worship and prayers have faltered. I have not let his love have its way with me, and so my love for others has failed. There are those whom I have hurt and those whom I have failed to help. My thoughts and desires have been soiled with sin. And then there's a spot that says, uh, what troubles me particularly is dot, dot, dot. And there you can either confess specific sins um, or uh, some people skip that last line and then just go, I'm sorry for all of this and ask for grace. I want to do better. And then it goes into the absolution portion. And I think that's um, absolutely fine. Uh, Sometimes people want that individual comfort, right? That that individual comfort. right of confession absolution without necessarily having to go into detail on the on specific sins and um that's good right um that that there's still a repentance of sins there that's absolved and uh that so that's absolutely fine 
And I think I mentioned last week that sometimes I know as this has come back into practice in the Lutheran church, um, pastors will have confirmation students do that, right? They'll have them just kind of go through the rite and um, give the general confession without hearing any specific sins unless the student, you know, wants to. But um, that's a way to just kind of teach that, yeah, this is a good thing to do and, and it's, uh, you know, it's not anything that needs to have like nerve wracking, um, you know, anxiety or anything involved with it. Um, this is just part of, of what we do in the church. So um, that that's a good point there that if you don't have, um, if you don't know exactly what to say, a general admission of guilt against God's law is sufficient. Okay. So uh, the next paragraph is also important. During the confession, your pastor might interrupt you to ask questions for clarification, um, but it, it's not the third degree. He's not uh, on a moral fishing expedition, and he's not there to condemn you, but to comfort you with God's promises. So um, sometimes uh, when people come to confess their sins, they will uh, try and kind of explain a lot of what's going on right instead of getting right to the point and and that's fine like i i mean i'm happy to just talk with people about about things but at the end of the day when we're there for confession absolution we want to get to what the what's the root of the problem right what's the sin that's bothering you um and that is um so sometimes kind of asking clarifying questions can be helpful for the pastor uh to get to that point um and so that that's just something to kind of be aware of. But um, they teach us about that in seminary, you know, like kind of how to hear a good confession and and how to help someone get to the kind of the root of their problem, right? So same way, like if you an analogy would be like if you you went to the doctor's office and um, they were, you know, you had a broken arm um, and you started telling them about you know, everything that you were doing that led up to the broken arm and everything. And they were like, let's put a cast on it, you know. Um, let's let's actually fix the, the problem first, right? So um, that's kind of the idea is um, we want we want to just get to the point. So, um, but we also want to talk about everything else as well. And, and so that's all fine. But uh, as far as the getting the confession and doing the absolution, right, the, it's kind of, there's a, there's a point to it, so. Um, okay. Uh, we've already talked about consciences and everything, so we don't need to go back into that. So after absolution, um, the the pastor, the Lutheran pastor, may speak with you during confession and offer advice or counsel from the scriptures. Uh, the matter is closed when the absolution is pronounced. He won't bring up the sins uh, you confessed at a later time. Those sins are as far from you as the East is from the West. Uh, every Lutheran pastor promises in his ordination. Um, we've already talked about this, but I'll read it again. Every Lutheran pastor promises in his ordination he will not divulge the sins confessed to him. This is called the seal of the confessional. For a pastor to break that seal would be a very grave error on his part, um, and he could face the sternest consequences. You can trust your pastor to keep his mouth shut about whatever you confess. Um, okay, I was hoping he was going to get into something else there. So, yeah, uh, but the, this first part he says here, that the pastor may speak with you to offer advice and counsel from the scripture. So um, in that right, again, 
Um, after the absolution is spoken, there's this these words in red here, these rubrics that say, the pastor may speak additional scripture passages to comfort and strengthen the faith of those who have great burdens of conscience or are sorrowful and distressed. And, and then the rite doesn't end until um, after that, and then after he speaks anything else he wants to say, then it says, go in peace, amen. So uh, this is a good, I think this is also a good practice that um, not only do we want to absolve, that's the main goal, right? We want to get to the absolution of the sin, um, but we also want to, pe- uh, we want to help people fight against temptation in the future, and we want to um, give people uh, practical advice on how to kind of deal with this in, in everyday life. So, so you know, sometimes, um, well, oftentimes there are these sins that bother us that are sins that we don't just commit once, but we commit over and over again, right, that we kind of continually struggle with. And um, ways to, f- there, there are um, scripture passages and, and there are, practical tips that I can give that help fight against temptation in that way, right? Um, and that, and and some psalms and stuff that we'll pray that kind of help instruct on on what to um, do in the, do in the future and how to um, kind of help deal with these these sins. And so this is actually kind of interesting because the um, the word penance that is one of the big problems with the way that Roman Catholics do confession and absolution, um, this was actually what penance used to be. When penance first became an idea, that the, the idea was that the person would go home, the penitent person would go home with some things to do that would help them fight against sin. So... Um, that like, say say um, say someone struggled with pornography, right? That and and I gave them the advice, you know, whenever you um, change your computer screen background to uh, either a picture of a crucifix or a picture of your family, right? So that whenever you open up the computer screen, um, you see that and you you think about what matters most. You think about uh, your family. You don't. You think about um, about Jesus on the cross, right? And that would be something for them to do, right? But that's not requ- required of them to receive the absolution, right? So that's that's the difference. Is then what happened in the Roman Catholic Church is they took penance and said, um, "Here's things that you have to do. You have to say this number, this many of the Lord's Prayer, and you have to um, say this many Hail Marys, and then the forgiveness counts, <laughs> right?" So that's not what we believe. That's not what penance is. But we do have this idea in the rite of confession and absolution that the pastor should be able to give some practical tips and advice, right? Actionable advice. And um, that's not, but that has nothing to do with them actually receiving the absolution. So um, that's why we don't call it penance anymore because that would just be too confusing. But that is actually where the term comes from is that the penitent would go and take do these do penance. He would um, do actionable things. But uh, anyway, that that's just kind of an interesting historical tidbit. But all right. Um, so that's kind of before, during, and after uh, confession and absolution. 
Any any questions on any of that? Okay. Let's. Uh, we already talked about the office of the keys. So um, let's move on then to. From the very beginning, not just recent, very beginning, I couldn't figure out what the difference between corporate confession out there, private confession in there, and the difference between private confession and counseling. Mm-hmm. Like, is that what private confession was like? You got back in your office, and out of my reading, I read, you don't do it back there, you do it where we take communion. Yeah, so um, there are different practices. I, um, that that's a good question. Yeah. My real villain what it was like. Where does not stop being one thing and start being another? But what is the difference between Sunday morning confession and at that time I was saying in your office does that. Is that still confession, or is that like a counseling session? Yeah, sure. So I'll I'll tackle the easy part first, which is um, the the place that it's done. Um, that is, I, I leave it up to the person who's t- doing confession. Um, when I have the open hours for Advent and Lent, I do it in my office because there are people coming, go, coming and going and doing getting dinner ready. But um, so that's just a practical thing. But then. Um, I leave it up to the person if they want the more casual setting of the office or if they want uh, the more formal setting of, of the... Uh, yeah. the chair turned at a 45-degree angle? Uh, yeah, I don't... Yeah. So um, I would... The way I would do it in there is um, probably have them sit in a chair and I'd probably either... I'd sit next to them and then I'd stand up for the absolution part. Um, we don't have a communion rail yet. We will eventually, um, and when we do have a communion rail, then I'd have them do it there, kneeling if they wanted to. But um, we don't have a communion rail, so uh, that's just that is what it is. So I'd probably have them sit and then um, do that. But the pastors that I have gone to before, um, depending on who it is and what context, um, you okay? Uh, I've done it in, in people's offices, and I've also done it in. Uh, in sanctuaries, and um, I prefer the sanctuary. I mean, I think that's uh, it, the the formality of it is reverent, so it's nice. But okay, so that's the easy part. The uh, more slightly more complicated part is what's the difference? Um, and we did cover it last week, so if you want to no. go back and listen to the podcast, that's okay. um, all good too. But I'll cover it again. So the difference between corporate confession and absolution and individual confession and absolution is that. Um, there are specific sins that are both confessed and um, addressed and absolved in individual confession absolution. So in individual confession absolution, when it's one-on-one, the penitent or the person confessing has the opportunity to confess to the pastor specific individual sins that bother their conscience. Um, And the pastor then absolves that sin that he has heard confessed and those words are words 
from the mouth of God, right? Based on the office of the keys, if you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. It's John 20. Um, in the corporate confession absolution, right, we have um, that time of silence where people can consider certain sins, and they very well might be considering specific sins in their mind and heart at that time. And when I give the absolution, um, so long as they're a repentant sinner, they are absolved of those sins. The difference is that that person doesn't get to um, know for certain that the pastor is speaking those words of absolution for that sin because they could always think, right? The devil could always tempt them to think that, well, if the pastor really knew what I was thinking about, he wouldn't have said that, <laughs> right? Um, but, and he, or something like, he's just, he has to say it because it's what's printed in the bulletin, <laughs> right? Um, or something like that, right? So there's a higher level of doubt that can take place in the corporate confession absolution. Likewise, as the pastor, in the corporate confession absolution, um, I always so I I always say the absolution from divine service setting three. I I never use any of the other ones, and the reason for that is because it um, begins with this conditional phrase: "Upon this, your confession." And I like that because as a pastor. I don't have the right, R-I-G-H-T, not R-I-T-E, I don't have the right to forgive sins of unrepentant sinners, right? Um, my job is to forgive the sins of repentant sinners and to withhold forgiveness from unrepentant sinners. So when everyone together in the whole congregation says, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you, and justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishment, so on and so forth. And then I say, upon this, your confession, I forgive you. Um, on, upon this, your confession, I, by the virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, I announce the grace of God unto all of you, so on and so forth, right? Um, I might not be forgiving everyone their sins in that instance, right? Because there could be someone out there in the uh, congregation that... Um, was first, I mean, maybe just innocently not confessing their sins, right, at all. Um, they were just saying the words. They were zoned out. I mean, I've done this before. I know I've done this before. Um, they were just zoned out, and they were just saying the words, right? They weren't um, thinking about, they, they weren't meditating on their sins. They weren't truly um, confessing uh, their sins to the Lord. They were just going through the motions, right? Um I've done this, you know, many times, probably probably more than I would like to think about, right? Um, this happens all the time in worship, right? As, as sinners, we just don't always fully worship the way we should. Um, or um, more nefarious or more um, wrong than that would be if someone was not really sorry for their sins, Say they didn't really think that they had a sin to, um, that that their sin really wasn't that bad, um, and they didn't really think that they needed to confess, and so, um, but they were they were thinking about that, and they were like, well, I'll just I'll just uh, 
take what the pastor says here as an assurance that that I'm still forgiven, right? Um, so say someone committed adultery and um, they didn't want to admit it to their spouse um, and they didn't want to come clean and they were going to, they planned on continuing to commit adultery, but they come to church on Sunday and they're like, um, I'm going to make sure I uh, cover my myself to God. I'm just going to make sure I cover myself by hearing the pastor's absolution, um, even though I'm planning on going out and continuing to commit adultery, right? Um, that would be unrepentance, and my absolution would not apply to that, right? So, but if someone came to me and um, said, Pastor, I want to confess to you that I've committed adultery, um, I really don't think it's that bad, and I would like to keep doing it, but I still think it's something I should go ahead and confess of, and and that way I, I just want to make sure we're all good. Um, this this happens. Uh, I mean, this hasn't happened specifically to me, but this, this does happen. Um, I mean, I know of a um, famous case, kind of, um, that this has happened where someone lost their... Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, but... I would not be under obligation to give that person absolution, right? In fact, I should not give them absolution. I'd say, you are not forgiven until you repent, which means, like, change your ways, right? Uh, that you, you know, confess to your spouse and that you um, uh, t- um, receive forgiveness, but you, you try to stop acting in this way, right? So, uh that's kind of the so that's the difference is that um, the specificity with which the confession can happen and the absolution can happen that just can't happen in a corporate setting. So um, and yeah, so so that's kind of the main main difference. Um, does that cut, does that answer all your questions? Okay. Because that completely separates confession from counseling. Yes, that was the, I knew there was something else I was forgetting. Counseling, yeah. So the it is different than counseling, although there might be some, kind of like we talked about, a little bit of counseling involved. The uh, primary purpose is to um, have the sins confessed and absolved, right? And then counseling can happen around that um, in some way. So sometimes this has happened where uh, I'll be counseling someone and I'll say, wait, hold on. Is this confession and absolution? Because I want to know if something is under the seal of the confessional or not, right? Or like it's it's important that we kind of be clear what we're doing at a certain point. Um, if someone's just kind of telling me about their problems and they they want counseling and advice, or if they would like to be this to be a confession and absolution where they're receiving for, forgive absolution and. Um, where that that seal of the confessional applies. It's not like I tell other people about um, anyone's counseling either, but uh, there is a different level of seriousness to from counseling to confession absolution. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, let's move on then. Uh, if there's any other questions, um, to uh, this kind of review of sin. And the different types of sin. So 
I think this came up. Annie, it was either you or, or Marsha asked if, um, like, all sin is sin or every sin is equal or something like that. Um, because I, well, anyway, we'll just jump into it. So um, I was trying to remember exactly how it came up. But I want to point out uh, something first, which is that we've already made some distinctions between sins. So the first one we've already talked about in terms of confession and absolution is uh, sins we know about and don't know about. Sins we know and don't know. And right there you can see that there is such a thing as different kinds of sins. So um, the Psalms talk often about uh, sins uh, we don't know in our hearts or Romans 3 talks about how we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, how there are, at how we're um, constantly sinful and we don't even think about all the ways in which we are. And you can kind of think about this in a general sense in your life if you think about like something like pride or um, the first commandment that we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things all the time. And how often are our thoughts um, something that is not God-pleasing, right? How often are our thoughts um, about selfish, prideful desires, right? How often do we put ourselves in front of our neighbor, right? And then, and then totally forget about it later on, right? That we, we, it never even crosses our mind again that we did something that was sinful. So you can kind of understand how that works. And then, of course, there's the sins we do know about that we have committed, that we remember, that um, uh, when we treated someone with hatred, when we um, have 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 done any number of things, right? Sins that we know about. So um, this is one kind of distinction about sin. There are other distinctions that we can make about sin, right? There's uh, original sin and actual sin. So this is, uh, if you remember, the distinction between the sin that we inherited from Adam and then the the actual sins that we commit throughout our lives. So um, we are born sinful, but then we have sins that we commit since. And um, But both these things are sin, right? But there are distinctions. Um, and, and these sins, all these different distinctions about sin, they affect us differently, right? So... Uh, sins we know about that burden our conscience, they affect us differently than sins we don't know about, right? They, they, they weigh on our conscience in a different way. Original sin uh, and actual sin, uh, they affect us differently, right? Um, original sin, when we think about how to deal with that, we think about things like baptism, right? When we think about how to deal with actual sin, um, obviously we remember our baptism, but we also think about like confession, absolution, and... and uh, going to receive the Lord's Supper and things like that. So um, the, the way in which these things are dealt with and the way that they affect our lives are different. Now, so that's kind of my first presupposition is that there are differences between sin. Now, my second presupposition is that every sin is damnable. Um, in other words, every sin, whether it's original sin, whether it's actual sin, whether it's a sin we know about or don't know about, every sin has the potential to send us to hell, right? Every sin is can be punished by God, 
uh, to to Damas, right? Um, this is this is the punishment of sin. The wages of sin is death, right? So ev- every sin is damnable, um, and thus um, needs repentance, right? Mm-hmm. So every sin we need to repent of, whether that's our original sin from Adam, our actual sin, a sin we know about, a sin we don't know about, um, because it's it's damnable, it needs needs repentance, okay? Now, there is um, a distinction in sin that we don't talk about much, but I'm going to have you open up to, to first, if you have a Bible, um, to 1 John 5. And this is, again, one of those things that Roman Catholics uh, retained the use of the language, and early Lutherans um, used this language as well, but then it kind of fell out of practice, and we don't talk about it much anymore. But this is the distinction between mortal and venial sins. First John 5, mortal and venial sins. Now, Roman Catholics understand this poorly, um, very poorly. So the basic Roman Catholic understanding is that there are certain sins that are... Um, no matter what, going to send you to hell. That they're going to kill you. They're damned. They're uh, they're they're going to damn you. Um, so ideas of and and then there are certain sins that are venial. In other in other words, uh, you can do them and get away with it, right? Um, and they basically classify sins between these two categories. So murder is a mortal sin. Uh, lust is a venial sin, right? Um, that's the way that Roman Catholics understand it, and that's wrong. That's not how we understand it. But this distinction is in the Bible. It's in 1 John chapter 5, um, starting at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. Your tra- this is the NKJV. Your translation might say deadly sin. Or First um, John 5 is a very small book. It's uh, in the back, very far in the back. Uh, yeah, there you go. First John 5. Um, so, so your translation might say deadly sin and, and undeadly sin. Um, or it might say sin leading to death and sin yeah, not not leading to death. Yeah. So the words leading there are not in the Greek, but um, you kind of have to add them in the English to make sense of what it's saying. So I think it's a good translation. But um, okay. So if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, uh, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. So John makes a distinction here between deadly and undeadly sin, or sin that leads to death and sin that doesn't lead to death. And the distinction is this. Um, Mortal sin, or deadly sin, is sin that is left unrepented of. And venial sin or un- undeadly sin is sin that is repented of. 
And that seems like a very basic distinction, and it is. But uh, when someone commits any sin and they repent of that sin, then it's not going to lead to death, right? Jesus is going to give him life um, for that sin. He's going to absolve him. When someone commits a sin and refuses to repent of it, if he does not repent of it and thus change it to venial and not mortal sin, it, it will be a mortal sin, right? Unrepented of sin uh, leads to death. It is deadly. That's why it's, it's mortal, right? Um, so that's the basic distinction. Now, how does this play out in everyday life? Well, the way this plays out in everyday life is that someone who repents of their sin, right, they work on, they change their ways. They, they fight against it. Um, and, of course, you can bring in the Christian life here in Romans 7, how even though we know the things we, we want to do, um, sometimes our, our flesh fails us and we, uh, we continue to fall into sin um, that, we, that we don't want to do. But regardless, the point is that someone who repents of their sin, they're going to be fighting against sin. Right? They're going to be trying not to fall into that sin. They're not going to be willfully um, going and continuing to commit that sin uh, in a willful uh, way over and over and over again, uh, knowing that they're sinning. Right? That would be unrepentance. Someone who repents of their sin wants to change their ways. They want to turn around. Right? So, someone who is unrepentant of their sin is going to willfully continue in that sin and that sin is going to um, continue in their life, it's probably going to get more and more intense, right? So someone who is unrepentant of lust, for instance, um, it might start with looking at the other sex lustfully. It might grow into uh, pornography usage, and that might grow into actual adultery, right? Um, So unrepentant of sin has this tendency to grow in a certain way, right? Um, and this is why we say that uh, this is where I think a lot of Christians have, have always said, um, t- talking about this point, every sin is damnable, will sometimes throw out something like, all sin is sin, every sin is equally bad. And that's true if you're talking about what sins like what different sins can be mortal or can be venial? What different sins are damnable and what sins can be repented of? In that case, yes, every sin is sin. Any sin can be damnable. Any sin can be repented of. But in reality, in everyday life, um, not just kind of on that theological abstraction, um, sins, different sins do affect us differently. And when you think about that growing unrepentant sin, um, you can <coughs> see how certain sins are more harmful to a person than than other sins. Uh, right? There's a certain amount of harm that's done when someone actually goes out and commits adultery versus when someone just looks at a, a woman lustfully. Right? When if a guy actually goes out and commits adultery against his wife. There's a lot more damage done in their lives, in the lives of his family, um, in the lives of the adulterers, than there is if he simply like glanced at a woman at the gym who was dressed immodestly or something, right? Um, 
the both are sins, right? And both need to be dealt with. Both need to be repented of. But um, the there are sins that are more egregious in certain ways, right? Not in the sense of like what sin is damnable, but in the sense of like the damage done. And so another distinction we can think about here is um, sin before God and sin before our neighbor. Sin before God, um, this is when every sin is equal, right? Um, I mean, Jesus says, if you look at a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery with her in her heart, in your heart, right? Um, if if you're angry with your brother, you have murdered him in your heart, right? Um, every sin before God is equal in that sense. Before our neighbor, uh, the the damages done by different kinds of sins are not equal, right? There there is that difference in severity there, and um, so I I think the reason I try and be careful about my language of every sin is equal is because we should recognize that on this earth, on this side of heaven, not every sin is equal, right? And we got to deal with different sins a little bit differently in that in that way too. And the nature of different sins is a little bit different too. So um, a, just a final kind of example of this is that in Romans 1, I, I know I'm just about out of time, but I'll just finish up this discussion. And in Romans 1, uh, Paul goes on to describe um, these people who have, these pagans who have completely turned their back on God. And this is when he talks about the sin of homosexuality. And the, the way he describes the sin of homosexuality, you can get it in the whole context of Romans 1, um, or I'll just point out a couple verses here, but uh, is he describes this as kind of a an especially vile sin, right? And especially a, a sin that is not, um, that is completely unnatural in its way, and is not—it's not just a sin that is, um, like so. If you think about sexual sins, there's kind of the spectrum, right? like I've already been describing, where you have like lust on the one hand, and then you you go up all the way to like adultery. Well, homosexuality is a sin that's, if you think about like lust um, be, from a man to a woman, there is a way in which that makes sense according to God's creation um, because men are supposed to marry women. Now, uh, the way that that's supposed to happen and the way that sex is supposed to happen, it's supposed to be within the confines of marriage and and men are not supposed to lust um, after women um, in a selfish and covetous um, and sexually immoral way. But it's natural in the sense that it's a man looking at a, at a woman. Homosexuality is not just sexual immorality, but it's sexual immorality that is opposed to God's creation. right? So, it's, uh, so I'll read verse 26. Um, for instance, for, for this reason, um, when he's talking about the, these pagans who dishonor their bodies, exchanged the truth of God for the lie. That's verse 25. That's what we were just talking about. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Um, for this reason, God gave them up to their vile passions. Uh, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature, men leaving the natural use of the women burned in their lust for one another. Um, that term, vile passions, that's the only time that word 
is used as an adjective. It's um, from the noun shame or dishonor. It's the only time it's used as an adjective in the New Testament. And um, I think it's here to show that the a special grossness of um, of this sin that Paul is describing. So even the Bible does make a difference between certain kinds of, of sin in that way. That um, on this side of heaven, like, yes, before God, all sin is damnable. The wages of sin is death. Um, we, we kind of talked about that side. But before our neighbor on this side of heaven, um, and even in a sense, you, you can see here in God's eyes, that there are um, levels to sin that are especially egregious um, and that are especially un- that become especially like unnatural in that way. So uh, you know, and so you can think about other examples of this too, like the the difference between um, someone who commits manslaughter versus someone who commits um, murder out of uh, crime of passion versus, uh, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer, right? Like, like serial killer, like kind of just um, loving the sin of murder, right? And and becoming intimately involved in it. So uh, does that all make sense that, that, that on this side of heaven before our neighbor um, and that this is one of the distinctions of sin is that um, there are sins and 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 it and it goes along with this mortal and venial sin thing too that when sins are repented of um, people change their ways and they don't normally end up in these really um, dark or egregious sins but when sin is unrepented of and I think this is kind of what led the Roman Catholics to get to where they're at where they classify certain sins as mortal and certain sins as venial, is that um, true Christians generally don't end up in a place because they have already repented of their sins and and repent and change their ways and try and live a moral life. Um, when after someone's converted, true Christians don't generally end up in these places where they're committing uh, very kind of what we'd think of as like intense or egregious sins. Right, um, but that's not always the case. 100%. The distinction is sin repented of and sin unrepented of. But you can see there how um, I'm just hesitant to say that every sin is exactly the same because not every sin is exactly the same. Every sin is damnable and every sin needs repented of. But there's a pattern to life and there's um, ways in which things happen. So does that? I'll, I'm going to stop talking now because I'm making it more complex. But does that um, does that kind of make sense, to everyone? It, it makes sense. But you, you were talking about the uh, homosexuality. Yes. So if a person, uh, let's say for instance, we just use that. If a person uh, has was in a homosexual relationship and they repented mm-hmm. and didn't go back into that homosexual relationship mm-hmm. or had those thoughts, not thoughts, but Mm-hmm. You know, go back into it. If they ask for repentance, are they forgiven? Yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. So, and I guess I should say that too. Um, every sin is damnable, needs repentance, and can be forgiven. Okay. Um, right. Not. Uh, there's no. Um, when I was talking about Christians who don't normally end up in these egregious sins, um, 
I, that's why I said like after conversion, when when someone is converted by the Holy Spirit and um, begins to grow in faith, uh, they tend to go the direction of repentance, the direction of change, the direction of sanctification, right? Not the direction of unrepentance and growth in sin. But it doesn't matter where someone is along that spectrum for them to repent, right? Someone can be very in very deep, dark sin and still repent. In fact, I use Jeffrey Dahmer as an example. Um, supposedly, I mean, I have no way to verify this. And, and um, I mean, there is a pastor who heard his confession who says this is true. I mean, supposedly he converted, right, um, and was truly sorrowful for everything he did and um, became a Christian, supposedly. And I don't, I don't want to... I don't want to cast doubt on that, but I also don't want to say that, like, oh, I 100% believe that because I simply don't. I, you know, I'm not there. I didn't hear the confession. I don't know, but, yeah. Well, I think we'll really be surprised who's in heaven when we get there, right? Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> I think it was James Dobson that went down to Florida and talked to the Jeffrey. Oh, that was Tim Bundy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, there are these stories of people... Um, Coming back back from very deep dark places and and um, so abs- I mean absolutely uh, people can be forgiven of, of of whatever sin no matter how kind of deep and dark it is. But there's only one unforgivable sin, am I right? Yeah, and that that I should have brought up that verse. There's one unforgivable sin, the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is another way to say unbelief, which is another way to say unrepentance, right? Um, to, to reject the Holy Spirit is to reject God's uh, life and word, and therefore it is to be unrepentant, right? So the unforgivable sin is unbelief. So where, where is it in the Bible? That is in Matthew uh, chapter something. Oh. <laughs> yeah, read through all of Matthew. You'll find it. Just uh, Google the unforgivable sin. You'll find it. Um, so if someone kills themselves and commits suicide, are they forgiven? Uh, po- possibly, possibly not. So. Um, if they ask for forgiveness before they commit, before they commit So if they ask for repentance, if they ask for forgiveness, then I would I would say, and then they do it anyway. That would not be true repentance. So if someone says, you know, please forgive me, they're not really wanting um, to change their way, right? Um, so, I mean, suicide is murder, right? So it is a sin. Mm-hmm. And um, it, if, if someone wants to repent of murder, you, you don't repent of something um, before you do it and then go ahead and do it, right? That would be the opposite of repentance um, in, in a sense because uh, you are not changing your way you're you're in fact continuing in your way right you're not turning around you're not changing directions you're going the same direction and um, so I don't think just if someone just says oh please forgive me and then and then and then kills themselves uh, that they are forgiven um, the the question of suicide I, I think um, the so Luther was famous for say so um, the Roman Catholic Church had classified suicide as a mortal sin, right? So you could not be forgiven of it. 
Luther was famous for pointing out that that's not necessarily true because someone could be so uh, deeply troubled by um, demons and they could be so in such a torturous place in life for whatever reason that they are a, they are a repentant sinner, um, but something uh, snapped. They weren't in their right mind. They, they um, were uh, so tortured by demons in some way that they didn't realize what they were doing and they remained a repentant sinner but still killed themselves and and thus are saved um i would say that that is the minority of suicides i i think most suicides most people aren't like out of their minds and tortured by demons and so utterly confused they don't know what they're doing i think most people know what they're doing and um that they are committing murder so and and un, and they are unrepentant so i i mean I'm, it's very sad like i don't want to think about how most people who commit suicide are probably going to hell but um i think that is basically probably the case i mean uh it's it's just hard to think of like um that they are not it, it's why we need to i mean we need to preach against suicide and we need to try and help people who are yeah. in those places right because um they are obviously in a very dark place in their life if they are and i, I know a lot of people who have you know um considered it and then repented and then um sought sought forgiveness and and um they'll tell you like I, I yeah I don't think I would have gone to heaven you know like I I was not in a repentant place in my life um, so yeah that's uh, I think that's kind of what it is I I mean I, I I don't think we can say that every person is going to hell but I think that it's definitely a very um, at, and when you're when you do that I think that of course, one of the the problems is you're you know you're not giving yourself a chance to repent later, right? Mm-hmm. You're willfully doing this thing that's going to um, where you're trying to play God, where you're trying to say when you die, and and when you don't, and um, so it's very sad in that way. But but yeah, I um, I think with Luther that yeah, not everyone who does it is can't um, going to hell. I think certainly someone could do it and not really know what they're doing. Um, but there are a lot of cases where people know what they're doing. So, And on that uplifting note, we will end with a word of prayer, unless there's any other questions. Sorry for going late tonight. Okay. Um, why don't we end with a psalm of thanksgiving? How about we do that? That would be good. We'll do uh, well, we'll do 32 since that's about both both things.
which I already read part of earlier. All right, let us pray. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones grew old, though through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you, in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen. Amen. I know one thing, that the book that you gave us to read, it it always has a psalm at the very top. Mm -hmm. 